Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this new edition of the podcast. I am always joined by my good friend, Rabbi Dove Lipman. How are you, my friend? Thank God, doing great. I do want us to talk about the Jewish holiday going on right now, Purim. Esther was a person who did a courageous act because she listened to the voice of the Lord. So before we do a little bit of Bible study about the book of Esther, why don't you tell us what the holiday of Purim is all about? Holiday of Purim is, is really a remarkable story. Just uh, We have the Megillah, the scroll of Esther, which tells us the story. The story goes back to actually between the times of the first temple and the second temple. The Jews are in exile in Babylonia, and then eventually the Persian regime takes over. And uh, according to our tradition in the Megillah, in the scroll, there is in the book of Esther, there's a king named Ahasuerus. That king has a minister named Haman, and Haman decides that he wants to have the Jewish people annihilated, a story that we're all too familiar with from our 2,000 years of exile. And God works very much behind the scenes uh, in this story. In fact, in the scroll of Esther, uh, in the book of Esther, you will not even see God's name mentioned. It looks like a series of political decisions and and political events and military events, and they make this decision that they are going to annihilate, and the king goes along with it. But God already planned the salvation, and the king, through a crazy story, absurd story, which we won't get into right now, ends up having his wife executed and looks for a new wife, ends up choosing a Jewish woman named Esther, who then is tipped off about the king's plan to annihilate uh, the Jews. And again, a lot of miracles and behind-the-scenes God doing things to let her be aware of the king's plan. And she goes into the king and says, your minister Haman wants to destroy my people. The king had no idea that she was Jewish. He says, the minister wants to kill you, my queen. He turns it completely on its head, 180 degrees, and has Haman and his cohorts killed, and the Jews are, are saved. And it's a tremendous celebration of what we call God working not in open miracles, but in quiet miracles. Miracles where everyone thinks that they're just ordinary events, but then at the end of the story, you can look back and connect the dots and see that's God who actually was behind the scenes, and it's what we call uh, hidden miracles, so to speak. And there's a tremendous celebration on this day. It's a day where there's feasting and there's sharing uh, of gifts one to the other, making sure the poor are taken care of, singing and dancing in a, a very festive, festive mood, both in Israel and in Jewish communities around the world, as we celebrate not just the salvation from that annihilation in that time, but the recognition that in all times, God is working behind the scenes and is always there for us. Maybe the most famous verse in the whole book comes from Esther chapter 4, when Mordecai is speaking to Esther, 
And he says in verse 14, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. We believe God uses people in specific circumstances with specific abilities to carry out his kingdom work. And in this case, Esther has to have the courage to go speak to the king. And you said his name in Hebrew. The English speakers will know him as Ahasuerus. And they go and they speak to the king. And Mordecai says, for such a time as this. And Rabbi, I believe that all those who follow after God may have the assignment from the Father to step up and do what is right. And in their lives, they may have a, for such a time as this. Absolutely. And we actually, I'm so happy, Pastor, that you pointed out that verse. That verse is talked about all the time uh, as we look at history, world history, Jewish history, people who are put into positions, put people put into situations where they can do something great and to recognize that that's their moment to act, that God has put them there and now it's time for them to act. And Esther is very much the model uh, for that. And it could be that God placed someone in a position of rulership or leadership or a situation where they can act, and it was just for that act and for nothing else. And, uh, and that's the way God runs the world, and that's the way we have to look at the world to see where is God putting us and what is our mission to fulfill when God puts us in those situations. And before we get into this week's Torah portion, just a couple more thoughts about Esther's story. Rabbi, how would you counsel someone if they're facing we pray, dear God, never to be in such a tragic circumstance as Esther was. But if we're having to stand up against evil and do what is right, if we're having to have courage to stop evil, how do they have the courage to trust God even if they can't see how it might work out? Well, I think that's very much what we're supposed to learn from this story. Uh, Esther did not know exactly what would happen. There's a tremendous buildup in the story in the book of Esther when she goes into the king, because the rules were that she was not allowed to go into the king without being called by him. And yet she's going to do it anyway. She fasts beforehand. She asks all the people to fast, to pray. And, and she goes in not knowing if that moment he might order her execution, as he did with his previous uh, queen. But she shows us uh, the strength of this woman of doing what has to be done in a specific moment and not be afraid of those consequences. But before she does it, she says, we need prayer, we need repentance, we need to be on a spiritual high. So when you, you, the way you get the courage to do so is, first and foremost, to look at those examples in history of people who took those moments, and Esther's one example, but also to recognize what she did before she took action. And that's prayer, and that's spirituality, and that's connection. And then once you put all those together, knowing that you have to have faith in God, you don't know what will happen. You don't know what the result will be, but you know that you've done your part, and now it's in God's hands for success or for, or, or for a lack of success. But a tremendous source of inspiration uh, as she makes her way into the king's chambers, not even knowing uh, what will come out of it, but just knowing perhaps this is my mission. This is why God has put me here. I have to do what's right. I have to do the preparation and then leave it in God's hands. So as we finish up the conversation about the Jewish holiday called Purim, celebrating God's protecting the Jewish people from those who tried to annihilate them, in this case, ancient Persia, and the courage of Queen Esther to stand up and do what is right, Rabbi, remind our listeners that the desire by people around the world, including in Persia, 
known today as modern-day Iran, that desire to annihilate the Jews still exists. That's one of the most amazing things, Pastor, and I'm happy that you brought it up. To know that 2,000 years ago, a little more than that, we had this decree from a Persian king to annihilate the Jewish people, and that here we are today, and again, essentially, the king of Persia, the leadership of Iran, both on the religious side and the political side, they talk on a weekly basis about the destruction of Israel. And we learn two things from it. Number one, we take the threat seriously. That's one thing which we've learned through our history. When someone says they want to annihilate you, take it seriously. That's part one. But part two, the absolute conviction and faith that we will be okay. We have to do the things that we have to do. We must take steps, both militarily and diplomatically, and working with alliances, and do all the things that we as human beings have to do, but not to forget prayer, not to forget the spiritual side, and not to forget that when it's all said and done, we know that we have the covenant with God, and we know that we won't be annihilated. But we need to do our part first, both on the physical side, but even more importantly, on the spiritual side. And the story of Esther it plays a significant, significant source of inspiration for that concept. And by the way, Pastor, I don't have to, I feel bad reminding you, but they also talk about the annihilation of Christianity, of the United States, of the big Satan, which they call the United States. These are, these are realities that we're dealing with, and it would be wise for everyone to look to the book of Esther and to read it, uh, to draw a source of inspiration for how do we deal with a situation like this where a king uh, and a regime says that they're going to annihilate an entire people. So as Jews around the world are celebrating Purim this week, we say Hag Purim Sameach and Happy Purim to all those who are remembering God's faithfulness to the Jewish people, which will lead us into this week's Torah portion called the Parashah in Hebrew, the portion of the Old Testament or the Torah that Jews and Christians around the world study every week. This week's Parashah has the title in Hebrew, Ki Tisa, which means when you take in Hebrew. It comes from Exodus chapters 30 through 34, and the people of Israel have left their slavery in Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They are entering on the way to the promised land, and yet there is a challenge of their faith, a question, will I trust God even when the circumstances look difficult? And the leaders of the Exodus, Moses and his brother Aaron, are leading the people, and there's a struggle about will they continue to trust the Lord. We talked in the last discussion last week about building of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, the place of worship of the Lord. But Rabbi, start us off here. When we get to chapter 30, there's a call for an offering, and there's also a call to take a census of the people. Very, very interesting that God doesn't need to know the number of the people. God obviously knows that. The commentaries say that God is showing his love for the people by doing so. But, but most importantly is the vehicle that's used for the census. And that's where we can really, really learn the lesson. And that is they're commanded to take a half a shekel, not a full shekel, a half a shekel, a half of a coin. And that's how the census is done. There is so much, Pastor, written about why a half a shekel. What's the message there? Uh, message number one is that none of us are ever complete. We have so much more to grow. And therefore, we can never say that we're worth the full shekel. Uh, and number two is, whether poor or, or wealthy, 
all give the same amount and shows that it's not your monetary wealth that defines you, but other, other elements of the human personality. But most importantly is the need to reach out and connect to other people. The fact that we are not complete on our own. We're only complete when we have unity, when we break down barriers, and then we come together. And that's how the people can be uh, complete. So many, many lessons learned from the, the way, the mechanism that God commands for this census, where it's not, I'm one, I'm two, I'm three, but I'm a half. And to learn all the various lessons uh, that can come from that. Your point is well made in Exodus chapter 30, verse 15. It says, The rich shall not pay more, the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel, when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So there is a sense that we are all equal before the Lord, that our corporate success or business success is not equal to our spiritual success, that God cares, as we say in our church, man sees actions, God sees hearts. We're all equal before the Lord. Very much so. And, 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 and sometimes uh, we, we, we really forget that. Uh, we live in a world where so much is defined by wealth and notoriety and, and not enough emphasis is placed on you know, who a person is as a person, as a spiritual being, the, the, the soul side. And that's very much the lesson uh, of, that, of that verse and, and what we're supposed to take from it. And we actually, to this very day, by the way, we actually, when we count people, uh, we have a custom that we don't say one, you know, for counting people, we don't say one, two, three, four, five. Uh, we, we find other ways to do so uh, because we, we learn from this verse that, that you're not supposed to count straight up, but find some other mechanism to do so, including uh, not showing that we're, we're a whole on our own. As we continue to talk about this week's Torah portion from Exodus chapters 30 through 34, I'd like to focus our attention for a moment to chapter 31 and a very interesting gentleman. Bezalel is his name, and he is given very great skills as a craftsman, as a builder, as an architect. He becomes the man who builds and leads the construction of the tabernacle. And what I find very encouraging is the Lord called this man to a very important kingdom assignment, and the Lord equipped him to do so. In Christian cliche lingo, we often say, what the Lord requires, the Lord provides. And that's what I see in the life of Bezalel. And we, we, and we very much agree with that sentiment, and we also talk about that's what God gives us talents for. We're given talents, all of us have them, we should figure out what they are, and then channel them to use them to, for the Lord of the spirituality. And it's amazing to see that, you know, in the Bible itself, how that point is made so clearly. God has given him the inspiration, God has given him this talent, and, and, and how he uses it uh, towards the construction of the tabernacle, and how the Bible very specifically says that it's the Spirit of the Lord that gives him uh, those talents. And we have to always look at it that way. Our talents come to us from God, and therefore we need to use them back uh, towards God. And that's exactly what Bethsalel does. And by the way, in the Hebrew, Bethsalel actually means Betzel Kel, which means in the shadow of the Lord. And that's a, a very important point, that he was, because he used the talents that God gave him to build the tabernacle, that brings him closer to God and brings him into the shadow of the Lord. That is exactly what the Lord says in Exodus 31, verse 3. God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. So what an encouragement that the Lord knows us individually 
and he gives us the skills or the abilities to carry out our kingdom assignment, and that's demonstrated by this gentleman named Bethsalel. And so now we move to chapter 32, and Rabbi, there's a bit of a discouraging story, a bit of a disappointing story. Moses goes to the mountain to have private time with the Lord, to hear from the Father what the assignment is and what His love is. Eventually what we call the Ten Commandments come, but the people are down below and they wonder, is Moses ever coming back? Did he abandon us? Did God bring us out in this wilderness to suffer and to die? So before we get to their reaction, talk about how sad it is that we people who trust and depend on the Lord, after a short period of time, our faith fades away and we begin to wander away spiritually. Yeah, you know, Pastor, people often say, yeah, I, I, I'm guilty of this as well, if God would only reveal himself to me, then I would be more faithful, then I would be more spiritual, then I would be more religious, and sort of throwing the onus on God. Here you have the greatest revelation of God in the history of the world, the revelation at Sinai, where God actually communicates to the people and gives them the Ten Commandments. And despite that revelation, just a mere 40 days later, the people lapse into the sin of the golden calf, where there's different commentaries that explain, is it idolatry? Was it just trying to find some kind of an image in, in place of Moses? But either way, it's a sin, that's for sure, of, of significant proportions. They just had the revelation. How can you either reject God or how can you reject his laws? And the lesson is so clear that it's not if God would only reveal himself, then we would be better. But rather, it's in our hands to constantly seek God, to constantly remind ourselves about God. And the onus is on us to gain that clarity and to see God and to reach out to him and not to wait for him. Uh, to come to us. I have to imagine that's also a, a, a principle and a tenet in the Christian faith as well. It is a sad commentary on us as humans that we forget the faithfulness of the Lord. We forget what he has done for us in the past, which is why I believe God often refers to himself as, I am the God who created the heavens and the earth, or I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He reminds us of his past faithfulness to encourage our present faithfulness And yet the people wondered, will God come through for me this time? And another sad commentary is, we're not quite certain who started the idea of making the golden calf, but if it was Aaron as the leader, then he led the people astray. And if it was the people themselves who chose to make the idol to dishonor God, then Aaron, who was supposed to be the religious leader while Moses was away, he didn't stop this idolatry. Very much so. And uh, it... It's difficult, and we always hesitate to criticize people who we know were, were great and that we don't come close to them uh, spiritually. On the other hand, the Bible is there for us to learn and learn from their mistakes. And it does seem that in this case, Aaron was trying to, the way our commentaries explain it is he was trying to delay the people. He said, you know, bring me your stuff, we'll see what happens, instead of just standing up immediately and saying, absolutely not, we will not allow uh, this to happen. And, and it's important for us to learn from that. Again, even, even the greatest of leaders uh, can have their flaws and can make their mistakes. And in this case, uh, it was you know, the, the pressure of the people leading him to, at the very least, not stop it from happening. And uh, that's a failure, which, which has ramifications uh, for him 
and it has ramifications, obviously, for the people. As a result of the sin of the golden calf, the first tablets are smashed and broken by Moses. Those were considered to be the tablets that had the greatest source of, of connection and spirituality, and now we lack that because those, those tablets were broken. Uh, we're told that the first tablets were written uh, by God, uh, as it were, and the second one was written by Moses. That's the difference between a divine entity versus something which was written by a human, obviously, with God's command. And that brings us to a lower spiritual level. So the ramifications of not standing up and stopping the people immediately are, are major, major. That has ramifications even till today. And it's definitely an important lesson to learn from. And most importantly, as we continuously learn throughout the Bible, that our people are not immune from mistakes, our leaders. Uh, everyone, every human being is bound to make mistakes. And the question is, how do you deal with it once you've made it? Uh, and, and to recognize that we always have to be on guard because even the greatest uh, can make such kind of uh, tragic mistakes. As we look at Exodus chapter 32, we talk about the sin of Aaron. It says in verse 4, he took this, meaning the gold rings, from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. So that was Aaron's sin of leading the people toward idolatry. At the same time, his younger brother, Moses, was on the mountain face to face with the Lord. And the Lord told Moses, because Moses didn't know what was going on down below, that the people had sinned, had committed idolatry or pagan worship, and the Lord expressed his anger, his frustration with the people, and we see the leadership of Moses begging God for forgiveness and repenting of, upon the sin of the people of Israel. So we had one leader, Aaron, who didn't stand up for righteousness and let the people go into sin, and we have the other leader, Moses, who's begging the Lord for forgiveness on behalf of the people. You do have that uh, interesting situation, and again, in our tradition, the focus that we have when dealing with the sin uh, is less on Aaron uh, and more on the people. Not that we don't hold Aaron accountable for not stopping it, uh, but there was this mass pressure, and he was trying to delay, trying to stall, trying to figure out what to do, knowing that Moses was going to come down. But yes, the second part of the story, where you see Moses uh, going up and praying uh, for the people and praying for repentance, uh, even saying, if you destroy them, you know, I don't want to be part of your Bible either. Uh, putting himself on the line, so to speak, uh, is a very, very important story. We actually, uh, in our tradition, that period of time was the time in the calendar uh, leading up to Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement. That's why those, the 40 days before Yom Kippur are days of repentance, and that we believe that repentance was actually granted on Yom Kippur, and that's why that becomes the Day of Atonement for us on an annual basis, because we see history and the calendar as more like a spiral, uh, which goes round and round and repeats itself, so that that day, the 10th of Tishrei, as we call it, is a day built in repentance. So we also certainly learn from Moses' response, first breaking the tablets, but then being there to be the one to inspire and pray and beg God uh, for that repentance. When Moses goes down and confronts the people with their sin, and he goes back to the Lord to repent on behalf of the people of Israel, and he asks the Lord for forgiveness. Then Moses, it says, took a tent and pitched it outside the camp, and it was called the tent of meeting. Now, this was different than the Mishkan, the tabernacle, but 
verse 9 of Exodus 33, it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. The Hebrew word shekinah, that means the glory or the presence of God. Texans like to call it the Shekinah glory of God. This is a story in Exodus 33 about the fact that if a person is holy, if a person is righteous, if a person is humble, if a person is repentant and seeks to be with the Lord, the Lord shows up to meet with them. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's an incredible scene as the people can't even look at Moses because he's, he's radiating. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of uh, people who say that the famous painting of, of Moses by uh, the his sculpture, I'm sorry, Michelangelo, where there's horns. The Hebrew word in the Bible is that it's Karen or Karen can mean a horn, but it also can mean a beam. And there were beams of light that would come from him, which is the accurate translation. And that notion that we can become godly, that we can become spiritual, that we can have God as part of us, that's something which we see from Moses' intense experience on the mountain, how it just changed his very being to the point that he needed to mask himself uh, from the people. And yes, that's exactly what happens. A person who refines himself, makes himself godly, uh, God comes to him and God rests upon him. And that's that divine presence of the Shekhinah, as we call it, uh, of being there. And, uh, you know, there, there are times that you, you will meet very spiritual people and you can actually see it on them. There's a certain radiance uh, that they have, and that's God's presence that's there with them. Exodus 34, verse 29, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with the Lord. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And then it says in verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses's face shone. It was shining with the glory of God. And I believe that's an encouragement to us that we who walk with the Lord faithfully, they begin to look at us and they begin to see more of God in us and less of us in us. There's a famous verse, and Rabbi, I know you've received this verse for me because it's on the bottom of every one of my emails. It's John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist said of Jesus, I must decrease, he must increase. And so the idea that matches here of Exodus 34, that if we become more looking like God, we become less looking like us, and people can see the Lord in us. It's a beautiful, beautiful concept, and one which we certainly agree to uh, wholeheartedly. And uh, it's just a reflection of the reality that uh, you know, we, have a, we have a concept uh, in our tradition that God is the sun and we are the moon. And, and the notion is that we simply reflect the light of God, just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, and any light that we have and the, and the goodness that we have inside of us comes because God is the one who comes to us and, and provides that. And as we can work on ourselves and, and try to perfect ourselves, and then God is the one who provides us with that, that radiant light. And that's very much uh, a core belief of ours, which we certainly see uh, from the story of Moses. As we come to the end of this conversation about the parashah from Exodus 30 through 34, the title is Kitisa in Hebrew. Rabbi, wrap up our thoughts today about Aaron 
and the people's sin and Moses repenting on their behalf and Moses hearing from the Lord. Wrap it up for us today. I think, I think the first thing, uh, and I'll connect it to Purim as well, is the need to act in, in critical moments and the need to stand up and not be afraid. And uh, certainly Esther reflected that, and perhaps Aaron, with the pressure of the people, uh, failed uh, in, in that moment. Um, but then it's also the, 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 the power of prayer, which you see in the story of Purim in the book of Esther, and which you see that even after the worst of sins as a nation, uh, Moses' prayer was able to turn it around and bring repentance. And I think those are two critical lessons. The need to stand firm and act for truth, and the need to recognition that prayer can ultimately turn anything around. And we just need to recognize that connection that we have with God, which enables us to have that kind of power. We do say Hag Purim Sameach and Shabbat Shalom to all of our listeners. My rabbi friend, Dove Lippman, always great to study the Word of God with you today. A pleasure to talk with you, and happy Purim to all, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lippman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.